unapologetics.com radio show where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. We are live. Uh, this is not a recording. After Thanksgiving, uh, we're alive. There you yeah. go. Proof. Not even. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we made it. Oh, my goodness. Um, but yeah, it, 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 I feel like we haven't been together in like three months or something, right? At least. Like well, you, you, were, you were off last month I when was. Uh, I was uh, sitting in your chair for you. Kept it warm, though. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Well, speaking of Thanksgiving, there's lots to be thankful for, and I just want to thank you, our listeners, for being with us for all these years. Um, and I'd like to remind everyone that our show is listener-supported, and we are supported entirely by your generous donations. So if you find our shows valuable and wish to see it continue, please su- support us by liking and sharing this particular show on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and other social media outlets. And you can help us with our radio costs by going to our website, www.apologetics.com, and click on the Donate button. Any amount helps. Your partnership will help us remain on the air. Uh, I was just mentioning a while ago that we've been on the air for how long now? Like t- at least 23 years. At Something least. Like mm. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, before I get into the topic, though, um, how are you guys doing? How's ministry? Any ministry uh, news that we should know about? Doing well, Harry, and good to be here again okay. in the studio. Do- uh, that's Dr. Jacob Daniel, by the way. Um, one of my favorite times of the month. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> to be exactly. here together and just uh, grateful for. Um, yeah, I remember mentioning this um, maybe a few weeks ago that um, I've been uh, spearheading a, a mentorship program, uh, which has taken, you know, uh, it started. So I'm really looking forward to it continuing and uh, been pouring into that, and as well as um, just finished speaking at few few of the events, uh, focusing on these days. I've been focusing more on. Um, making theology applicable, you know, okay. uh, to the church folks, uh, trickling down what we're going to talk about today. That's right, what we're going to talk uh, about some today. Some of the academic, uh, you know, discussions around certain topics and bringing them to the church. So grateful for all those opportunities. Really looking forward to, um, you know, uh, a time of uh, rest, which I feel I need. So I'm going to take a week-long rest for, uh, and then start all over again. So. <laughs> Good. How about you, Lenny? How are things that come reason? Uh, doing doing well. We're, uh, of course, uh, just got back from uh, the big Evangelical Theological Society, Evangelical Philosophical Society annual meeting, which um, basically has about you know 5,000 professors, graduate students, and scholars all getting together, sharing their thoughts and topics. Uh, there were 5,000 folks that attended? Yeah, wow. yeah. It's a, I, it's basically, I call it Comic-Con for theology geeks, is what it really <laughs> comes down right, to. Right. Uh, but uh, that was a great time, and then uh, getting ready, I'll be doing a, a conference at New Orleans at the beginning of the year. Uh, finished an, another one up a little while ago and then planning our own uh, for the beginning of March. So that's that'll be exciting as well, the next Dare to Defend conference and other, mm. other opportunities boiling over as we continue. So, yeah, oh, that's good. All right, well, our topic for this evening is what, <clears throat> here's the title, what role does Christian scholarship play in the church? So I know you guys are really into this. You guys have developed ministries to support uh, the church in terms of uh, intellectual pursuits uh, in in defense of the faith in particular. So let me ask you guys, because maybe uh, this show might help others who are probably thinking, should I get into this? Or what's the point in all of this? Shouldn't we just have faith or wouldn't that weaken our faith if we start delving deeper into these kinds of issues? Or is that just for, for intellectuals uh, who teach at the university? Does it really matter that I know X, Y, Z? Isn't it enough that I believe in Jesus mm. and uh, I attend church and a Bible study once a week? You know, those kinds of issues. So let me start with, uh, let's start with you, Jacob. How did you get to um, the, the whole... Uh, importance of spending time, resources, energy, and pouring into the life of the mind. 
Let me say, um, I had that privilege of being raised by a father who loved books. So it all started at home, and I was surrounded by books. So uh, those seeds were already planted early on in my life. But uh, for me, coming to, especially studying theology and philosophy and apologetics, was through the way of really spending too much of time in the secular world uh, in the sense of learning uh, for career. So I had a transition from there. But I think as a, as a Christian, um, it's not an option available for us. The way I see is that when we, it's a, it, uh, for us to know and learn is a privilege. It helps us to love the Lord more, as the scripture tells us, and also to subdue the world that he's given us in the manner he, in which he requires us to, uh, you know. So I think it, it, it's a project of loving the Lord and also fulfilling the command that he's given us to teach and disciple the nations, all that he's taught us to. Um, so, yeah, that's been my journey, and it's been one I would not trade anything for. You come from a family that valued learning. Yes. Uh, that certainly helps. Uh, what, what if... Um, what if, let, let's say, your upbringing is not like that? Yeah. Would it be, certainly it would be harder, it'd be more of a challenge, right? Well, I, that was, my situation was a little different than that, although my family valued the idea that you go to school, get a good education so you, you know, don't have to dig a ditch. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was the basic bare extent. They were not academically driven. They were people who, blue collar, built their businesses from their hands. But with me... Um, the idea was first, uh, you know, I came out of Roman Catholicism, Hmm. which, uh, I was marginally catechized in the Roman Catholic church. It's, it's, it, they don't do a lot of deep theology on Sunday mornings. Hmm. And that was one of the reasons why I had some frustration with it. But when I, uh, began my evangelical journey, what I found was, <clears throat> as I would read and explore the scriptures, I wanted to take them a little deeper. So even my ministry was started because, yeah, I wanted to build a website. Okay, so what do I do? I, well, this is mid-90s. There weren't a whole lot of <laughs> During templates the AOL out there. days. Before yeah. AOL. Oh, before AOL. I, before AOL. AOL. This com- CompuServe Netscape 2.0. I mean, I had to use a bulletin board system to oh. find... <laughs> Uh, something to use as copy so I can answer the guy and things like that. It was all dial-up. It was it was very early yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> but what happened was is I wanted. I said I want to take the scriptures more seriously. I I I see that a lot of church folks will read a story. You know, disciples are out in the boat. Jesus is walking on the water. Peter says, "Lord, if it's you, call and I will come." Jesus says, "Come," and Peter walks on the wall. And we read it in almost a fairy tale context. Mm. It, it, it's almost an otherworldly, not real. And I'm thinking, here's a 30-year-old man who spent his life fishing. He knows what it's like to be thrown overboard. I mean, this is not, you know, what's going through his mind as he's sticking his feet over the side of the, sh- the boat? So if we can take that idea and make it real, that would be interesting. So that's that was kind of... and. The way I actually did it was I found, I, like I said, I found a uh, letter that an atheist wrote objecting to Christianity. And so I answered all of his points and he came back and he responded. Then I responded to those and somebody else had a question and they would ask this and I would. And that's what hmm. that's where I began. But what I found was as I explored these questions and even if the questions were hard, two things happen. First of all, you find out that there are answers out there. And I was amazed at the hidden riches Christianity has intellectually, the, 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 the serious horsepower hmm. of those who've gone before us and even those who are alive today in the um, intellectual acumen that they possess and the, and the depth and the strength of their answers. That was, that was we have a wealth of riches intellectually to answer these questions. In fact, you look at the new atheists, right? And you know, oh dear, everybody gets, look, Augustine answered those guys some hmm. 1500 years ago. I mean, you know, they're, they're not coming up with anything new. 
So there's that. But then the second thing is, is the more you explore even the toughest issues, when you find the answer, you have a better appreciation of who God is. You draw closer to him. You feel more secure in your faith. You're able to walk a little bit taller. You're able to not worry about the, well, what abouts and how can you guys believe? It just, it, it, it sounds so frivolous because you know that there's something more substantial there. Hmm, right. And and that grows. You know, uh, Jake Gretchen uh, said this, faith, he says, quote, faith is indeed intellectual. It involves an apprehension of certain things as facts. And vain is the modern effort to divorce faith from knowledge. But although faith is intellectual, it is not only intellectual. You cannot have faith without having knowledge, but you will not have faith if you have only knowledge. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the proper balance. It is making truth claims. All faith is making truth claims. We don't yeah. believe blindly. That blind faith thing nobody holds mm -hmm. to, right? We, we, it's, it's, even Paul in 1 Corinthians said, look, I'm not just telling you to believe this. Go ask people. They're still alive. Some of them have died, but some of them are still alive. Look, I told you this before, and I'm going to tell it to you now. You check me out on this. Christianity has always been a faith based on history, based on reason, based on fact. Yeah, and I'll add this, you know, time and again, I come across people uh, who would tell me this, that they've never had that privilege of, you know, having parents who were into yeah. books or anything like that, or they were not even in faith. So when they came into faith, you know, trusting in Christ, they had this new longing to learn and yeah. to know. Time and again, I hear those stories, and it's amazing. Well, anyone yeah. who's, who's I, I use this analogy a lot, if, if you have a, a fiancé, a family member, someone who's, say, stationed across the world in the military, and uh, before the days of Zoom, you would only get letters, maybe mm -hmm. a phone call, but uh, you remember in World War II that the, the troops would read the letters from their fiance and read them again and, and look for all of those little details because they want to understand who that individual is. So they, they study them. They read the details. Well, that's what we should be doing with God's Word, studying it, read the details. Jesus is the logos, the reason, right? That's what that word translates into. It's, it's as much a mind and an intellectual understanding of who God is representationally as it is um, an emotional one and, yeah. and relational one. All of those are true. And so if we truly love Christ, we will want to know all aspects of who he is, all aspects of understanding God. Yeah, and our, our uh, learning has a telos. It yes. has an end, which is worship yeah. at the end. Right. And I think we, we continue with um, the responsibility that the church has been given by Christ through the way of knowing what Christ has instituted. Now, I know you guys are familiar with this, but we do, like Lenny was saying, we do have a rich tradition of uh, scholasticism and academics and intellectualism. And, uh, because, see, we our faith wrestled with the tough questions, such as, let's say, the uh, uh, dual natures of Christ, let's say, yeah. or even the Trinity. When good learning and good knowledge was applied to that, uh, that that was just a, a good foundation for other things. So, like centuries later, the the explosion of science. You know, uh, we sometimes we forget that the most brilliant scientists were Christians, mm. and uh, and even today, and even yeah. today, sure, and even uh, in in the fields of philosophy. I guess the question is, why aren't we known for that? Why isn't the Christian known to be? the smart one in the community, the expert at X or Y. And it used to be, right? In and the, it used in to the, be. In the medieval age, even in the early Renaissance, if you wanted to, uh, if you lived in a smaller town and you wanted to ask the expert, you went to the priest because mm -hmm. he was the best educated guy in the in the vicinity. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I think we lived in that kind of milieu then, that it was assumed that it was it were Christians who were doing that. Yeah. But today in our world, we don't live in that kind of environment where anything with the prefix, you know, Christian qualifies to be something intellectual or credible. Right. So I think even with Christians who are doing good uh, academic work and scholarship, Christian scholarship, they hesitate to basically proclaim it right? Amplify it as something Christian. 
And I think we need to redeem that as well. Yeah. So <clears throat> there, there's a story about what happened in, in scholarship in the Enlightenment. Because, of course, after the medieval period, when the Enlightenment starts out, it becomes <clears throat> an idea of understanding reason as its own motivator. And Immanuel Kant, of course, is the, is the primary proponent of this idea that reason can in and of itself justify itself and you don't need anything beyond it. So, so all of a sudden, when you take God as the highest order out and replace it with reason, then, in, then it, the next step is, well, whose reason are we talking about? Man's yeah. reason. So who's the highest link in the chain now? It's us. And the Enlightenment started to, to distance reason from God. Then you get in the 19th century, the German higher critics who start to say, well, we can even reason about how the scriptures were created. And we can think through maybe our biases and see that these are mythical or that, that you have the documentary hypothesis, J, E, P, and D. And mm -hmm. you get all of these kinds of things. And there was a backlash to that. While most of the colleges and universities were founded by Christians, many of them, Harvard, Princeton, you know, they were um, seminaries. They were divinity schools. That's what, that was their primary. And they were Trinitarians. Purpose. Yes, one yep. time, uh, all of them. And then uh, they started pulling away from that. What happened was there, the anti-intellectual movement, the fundamentalists, came along and said, "Well, if you're going to throw away the idea that the Bible is the inspired word of God." then we want nothing to do with your intellectualism. And they withdrew completely. And that was a mistake, because now all of a sudden you have this bifurcation, and it seemed to be you're either in the scholastic camp where you, can, where you have to question scriptures, or you're in the believer's camp where your fundamentalism says that we don't do any of that. Mm. And, and when we've abandoned the colleges, we turn around, 50, 100 years later, and we say, oh my gosh, it's amazing how secular they are and how biased against Christianity they are. Well, yeah, if you, yeah. <laughs> if you silo yourself. And that, that was a false dichotomy, I think, that caused this split uh, where we started trading more on emotional appeal. Uh, you, you get the, the Billy Grahams of the world who are uh, you know, God bless Billy Graham. He reached a lot of people, but never did he reach a lot of people by saying, this is the beginning of a discipleship process that's going to require all of you, mind and all, as C.S. Yeah. Lewis said, yeah. uh, which is, you know, and, and I think Dallas Willard makes the that point as well. Your sinner's prayer is the first step. It's not the last step. It's not, okay, I've crossed over the saved line and I don't have everything else is icing on top of the cake. That's not the way Christianity was ever meant to be constructed. Jesus in the Great Commission says, make disciples, make those that are going to basically pattern their lives after me. And that means learning and all. And yeah. I think with Christian learning, the beautiful thing about if, if you look at the world's learning, religious or non-religious, they yeah. go to the extremes. It, they go to either Gnosticism, everything spiritual matters and material doesn't matter, or it goes on the way of materialism. There is no spiritual, we can just achieve everything through right reason alone and understand the world. I think there's kind of an embodied reality mm -hmm. that Christianity brings in its learning where revelation informs reason yes. and confirms the reality in which we reason live. will get you well, some yeah. places, and that's a yeah. good point. It's the logos becoming logos. Right. flesh, flesh, and so this is already trying to advance to what we're going to be celebrating uh, the next few weeks, yes. right? So right. the logos, and uh, even with flesh. these Ivy League institutions, they were all Trinitarians. So when they latched onto this Enlightenment idea of reason, they abandoned revelation because you, how would you know Trinity without revelation? That's right. You came to reason. Now you had to be Unitarians. And we have these examples throughout history. So, for example, if you look at the Greeks, the Greeks got really close in their idea of the soul. They got really close in a lot of their uh, thought, but they couldn't cross that line. It yeah, took right. the Apostle Paul to say, hey, look, here's the unknown God that you're missing. Yeah. Uh, because you won't get there unless you have the revelation explicitly explained to you in the person of Jesus. Similarly, if you look at the great 
awakening and and the uh, and the burned over district right charles finney in the late 1700s early 1800s upper state new york uh you had a lot of itinerant preachers running through there people getting saved catching the holy spirit yeah. the whole bit so much so that finney said there's been so many revivals in that area the area is burned over but no churches with deep theological roots. No pastors were there to really continue that process. So what do we get out of it? We get Mormonism. We get William Miller and the, and mm. the Jehovah's Witnesses mm. that come out of that. We get the, the Shakers, the Quakers, which are not necessarily cultic. Uh, they're not her her heretical, but you get the Fox Sisters and spiritualism. You get all of these aberrant movements and many of the you know, uh, the heresies, the cults of today come out of that because there's no one there to ground them hmm. in in thoughtful reflection of what our theology actually means. So let me ask you gentlemen, so in the first few hundred years after Christianity was born, all right, uh, the early Christians had to wrestle with some heavy-duty ideas that they mm -hmm. never wrestled with before, like I mentioned a while ago, the dual natures of Christ, uh, how to explain the Trinity, uh, and you know we we hear of councils where a lot of that had um, kind of come to fruition, or they they they've made some really great strides in formulating those kinds of things, like Chalcedon and things like that. Do you think today we have something that big where? Christian scholarship is now focused again, laser focused into figuring out those answers? Or are we sort of like doing the whole silo thing again and mm -hmm. saying, all right, we're, we can't deal with that. We're just going to sing Kumbaya and go to our churches again. Do you guys see anything like that? Uh, one of the areas where I see is that we are failing to define terms. Mm. Or, or redefining them. So we've had a stage, uh, a few decades of church existence uh, in modern times where we have somehow given into redefining certain terminologies. And now I think there's a comeback. G give me an example. Uh, it will be, for example, let's see, uh, uh, what does it mean to be a person? Mm, okay. Right? Um, uh, what What is the state of a human being? Embodied being or is it a separate reality? Um, so, some, so how do we define those terms? I think there's a comeback happening now. We are asking or recognizing the importance of defining terms. Okay. So in one sense, I do feel that there is n nothing new under the sun. The, as you mentioned, there is a wealth of you know, um, scholarship that is already available. Having said that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be asking more yeah. questions that are relevant for us today. That's the Christian privilege that we have. But having said that, I think, as you said, we have the answers. We should not be ignoring the history that we have, which is uh, full of wealth of information and ideas and engagements. One of the things that uh, Jay Warner Wallace told me uh, in his experience, of course, as a detective, when he puts a person on the stand or when the trial is going on for a uh, murder case, they often bring in experts. They'll bring in the forensics guy. They'll bring in the, the ballistics guy, right? They'll, they'll, they'll bring in all of these guys. And what they need, though, is the attorney to translate because they're talking at a very high level, a very technical level, a very scientific level. The jury won't necessarily be understand, able to yeah. understand that. And when he went to some of these academic meetings, he goes, yeah, that's what the church needs. The church needs a translator because the academics are talking at this very high level. Hmm. And look, apologetics is the defense of the faith. So it is a court type, right? Yeah, a courtroom defense. That's the reasons and evidence. We have the reasons and evidence, but we need someone, and this is what I think a lot of our job is that we do, is to take words like, you know... Um, Hypostatic union. And things yeah. like that, and break <laughs> them down into, into intelligible un understanding right. ideas and analogies that people can then wrap their minds around and say, okay, I get it. Okay. How do I understand the Trinity? You know, how do I, how do I explain it? Well, um, you know, there's a difference between person and being. Okay. A tree is a being. A dog is a being. It has no personhood whatsoever. A human is a being with one personhood and God is a being with three personhoods. Yeah. Being and person are two different ideas. And that's so important. Having spent 
so much of time in, in in secular universities. I think there is that culture of keeping those lingo, yeah, a secret, Jargon, yeah. as you know, academic secret. Yeah, you maintain that you don't want it to be trickled down. And I wonder if that that has kind of like impacted the the Christian institutions as well. And that should not. What you're saying is that what we are speaking up there, high up in the ivory towers, right, must must inform every day to day life that we live. And we used to uh, value. Uh, yeah. The life of the mind. Now, today, the public, you, you have to talk down to the people, right? We don't want our senators to be the smartest guys in the room. They, we want them to sound like us, yeah. dress in shorts and hoodies and things. All right. Well, we're coming up on a station break. You've been listening to Apologetics.com, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Our topic tonight is what role does Christian scholarship play in the church? We'll be right back after a few messages. Welcome back to the uh, second half hour of the live Apologetics.com radio show. And it's just such a privilege and honor to be here this evening. I feel like I've been away for quite some time, but Lenny, you took the reins just fine, so thanks for that. Tonight, we are talking about the role that Christian scholarship plays in the church. Um, And Lenny, uh, just before the break, you were talking about how our job is to translate uh, what scholarship is doing up there in the ivory towers and make it trickle down into the pews. So let me ask you first, um, why, why is that important? They seem to be separate spheres, right? All right, so that's the world of academia. You guys are professionals. You guys ruminate and talk mm. about these kinds of things, write books, speak, and everything. And then how about the the rest of the others, they don't need to care about that, or should they? Or what, what's what's the issue there? What, why is that even important, do you think? Well, it does shape how you understand things. I think the, the, the primary model of this, actually, the one who did it the best was C.S. Lewis, who would take the intellectual acumen and the highest levels of thinking, and he would write a book like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or uh, The Great Divorce, or you know, um, his entire Narnia series, really. And, and it allowed people to see in a fundamental way what theology in practice actually holds and how it works in real life, how how people can really be tempted by Turkish delight and, and how substitutionary atonement works. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, famously said this. He says, if all the world were Christian, well, then it might not matter if all the world were uneducated. But as it is, a cultural life will exist outside the church, whether it exists inside or not. To be ignorant and simple now not to be able to meet the enemies on their own ground would be to throw down our weapons and to betray our uneducated brethren who have under God no defense but us against the intellectual attacks of the heathen. Good philosophy must exist for if no other reason because bad philosophy needs to be answered. The cool intellect must work not only against the cool intellect on the other side, but against the muddy heathen mysticisms which deny intellect altogether. Most of all, perhaps we need intimate knowledge of the past, not that the past has any magic about it, but because we cannot study the future and yet need something to set against the present to remind us that periods and that much which seems certain to the uneducated is merely a temporary fashion. A man who has lived in many places is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village. The scholar has lived in many times and is therefore to in some degree immune from the great cataract of nonsense that pours from the press and the microphone of his own age. I love that quote. Yeah. And, and I was going to, I got reminded, if I'm not mistaken, it's one of his uh, sermons uh, he gave at Oxford during wartime. Yeah. So it's interesting because the students I, I, and some of the faculty and staff probably figured, we have a major war going on, guys. Is there any point to learning? So that's one of his responses. Uh, so there is a point, even even to learn on is is a good on its own. Yeah, against it's, against yeah. like he says the muddy heathen mysticisms who just dismiss intellectualism altogether. Yeah. And I think there is something here about loving thy neighbor as we're commanded to, um, and it follows by loving God first. And how mm-hmm. we love God is by knowing Him. 
and knowing what he has commanded us to do. And I think the, the task of education and learning is to make us civilized. Uh, and what, what is needed to be civilized is ethics. That's why education used to be the domain of the church. Mm-hmm. It's no more the case. So uh, we need to understand that we are always learning or always being impacted by what is being taught or how the culture is being catechized, right? Uh, in terms of what trickles down into culture. So as you said, Lenny, we all are affected by the consequences of ideas. Yeah. And therefore, we all have the responsibility. And I think learning is more uh, uh, like fertilizer. You know, you may have a life, but do you want to flourish? You want to bear more fruits? And learning helps us to do that. Yep. And, and some learning smells like it does exactly (laughs) i knew you're gonna make that connection yeah yeah especially if you're like up at 2 a.m trying to finish your dissertation right yeah that's right that's just no fun at all it's It's hard work and i i wonder if people i'm not uh, accusing anyone here but i wonder if sometimes it does happen because it's hard work and it's because of our laziness that we question The, the benefit of learning. Well, we, we have become a passive society. Yeah. We don't necessarily weigh and think ideas for ourselves. We listen to the pundits and repeat yeah. them. We don't play our sports. We watch them on TV. Yeah. We, we, we become very passive. Well, I have a, a, an answer to that one, Jacob. Um, I don't think we're necessarily lazy about learning because consider uh, anyone who has a hobby, let's say, or anyone that's just interested in anything, all right? Um, Mm-hmm. They, they they do take the time to learn as much as they can about something. So if, if, things, if a yeah. guy is, is into guns, oh my goodness, then they know everything about this gun, how how to maintain it, how, you know, like the different variations of this and that, and they clean it every, you know what I mean? They look at it, yeah. they handle it, they handle it with care, they marvel at it. I really think, or, or even the video gamer, right? I mean, even the video gamer. Well, yeah, I, men- I mentioned Comic-Con, for example, and, and how they those fans are just, they know every aspect. That's of- right. And they even want to be like the character yeah. that they love, right? They dress like them, they yeah. act like them, they speak like them. So l- let, me, let me make that uh, parallel. With, with Christianity, with the faith or religion or whatever, I, I have to fault... Maybe the translators uh, or maybe the higher ups or even, unfortunately, Christian leaders who have really made Christianity boring. A lot of it is just emotions uh, and ad nauseum. You know, that's all it is. Or or praise and worship music that appeals to uh, just women. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's the dimensions of our faith has been watered down. But if they truly got a glimpse of the beauty of God, right? His character, his nature, uh, and, and all the mystery behind it. Again, the transcendence that we're missing out on. I think people would be turned on to it more. Oh, yeah. And, and again, <clears throat> you can do this. Uh, well, it was a point, for example, where you had, um, say, the Wesleys, John and Charles, who were great theologians, also writing the worship songs. Because, because to tell you the truth, most people don't realize there's as much, at least as much instruction going on during the worship singing as there is during the message. And I tell people, well, okay, so we're Friday night. Remember last Sunday service. How much of the pastor's message can you quote? Hmm. And how much of the song can you re-sing? Right? Which is why... Andrew Fletcher, you know, 1600s uh, Scottish philosopher said, let me make the songs of a nation. I care not who makes its laws because he knows that that's that passionate thing is the thing. And again, this is why Lewis did and Tolkien wrote things as they wrote them, because they knew that that was where the passion. And we need to be realistic as well. Not everyone is called to do high academic level. Oh, sure, that's true. Christian scholarship, not at all. And I think you're talking about people being engaged in different other trades and tasks, and, you know, they have different skills. The question is, does Jesus have to say anything about that? And how does they live a kingdom mindset? In, in, in the domain in which they find more relevance in terms of their engagement. So I think uh, there is a task that, that has, uh, as people who've been given that responsibility or the privilege of spending time reading and learning and engaging with people at that level that we, as you said, 
have the task of translating yeah. that into our culture. And, and we should be sensitive enough to understand that there are always cultural moments that call for it. For example, you know, uh, uh, the whole idea of um, CRT and, and all of this. The Christian response is, of course, the Imago Dei, right? Yeah. Why, why are we all created equal? Why do we each deserve equal worth and dignity? Well, it's because the Imago Dei. Okay, but what does that mean? And how do we translate? How do we put the... the feet to it so that the average person understands this what does it mean to be human yeah and if it and if what it means to be human is not following your appetites but following those aspects that make us flourish more um distinctly right the 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 appreciation of beauty the transcendence of of moral realism the idea that one can reason and use their mind in ways that animals never could that separates us from the rest of creation that distinguishes us as those who bear god's image and the ultimate of course image of god is jesus he yeah. is the image of the father it says very explicitly mm -hmm. there so the ultimate imago dei is christ and, or we look at the whole transgender question okay well this is this is a problem of um theology of the body when was the last time you heard a sermon on theology of the body but it's a central issue that's on in our society today, yet we're never talking about theology of the body yeah. in our pulpits. We may talk about transgenderism, but you're not linking that to a much bigger issue because the, our corruption of the idea of the body has been going on for at least 50 years yeah. in uh, our culture. And the way I distinguish that is also the difference between precepts and concepts. I think uh, in the academic world, we are engaging a lot with concepts at different level, even within the, uh, the popular level or yeah. even church level. But we need to be engaging with the precepts that precedes the concepts. Right. And I think that's where we need to latch on to the idea of revelation and reason together as God has you know, given us through the scripture. And here we're talking about Christian scholarship, right? And I think, because um, there are different kinds of academic scholarships sure. uh, around, but we're focusing on Christian scholarship and that has to begin with certain presuppositions. One of which is that there is a God and he has spoken. Mm -hmm. And that's where we all start. And that's a, a reasonable faith, as you said, yeah. something that we can put our trust in and build something flourishing. Let me ask you guys a question. How do you guys feel when... Let's say you are in possession or are experiencing some deep theological truths. Uh, you, you might be actually in a church or in a study, and then you find your brother or sister here just totally not getting it at all. How does that make you feel, and, and what, what's the proper response, let's say? So uh, you guys have been in teaching situations, you know, like in a classroom or speaking before uh, an audience, uh, how, how do you guys overcome that chasm, let's say, of the, you're excited about God and his nature, his character, and you're, you're having some kind of a lesson about God and, uh, and something about the faith, and yet you look at the people there and they're maybe... It, it's deer <laughs> in the headlights. Right, deer in the it, headlights. It, 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 <laughs> yeah. What do you guys do? I think we need humility. Mm -hmm. We need to be like Christ who is seeking disciples out of people who who were not as learned. They were they would learn. I mean, they were Hebrews, I and mean, they had yeah. to read Scripture, and they need to understand all that. Uh, so we need to be like Christ. And I think what, what is needed is that something called intellectual humility. Uh, uh, we need to understand that we don't have exhaustive knowledge, all because we understand something and our brother and sister is not able to doesn't mean that we have more value than our brother and no. sister. Not at all. In the economy of God, we have the same value and same destination if we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But we have the privilege, and the, it, and the privilege is same for both of us to grow together in the knowledge of God. And that privilege is available for all of us. Yeah, yeah I, I think from a practical level, a couple of things happen. First of all, I, whenever something like that happens, whenever I just like have this insight or I'm reading something and, and the light bulb goes off, my first response is, oh, I got to share this. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I want to share it with somebody. Uh, but I, I also think that we can learn from the scriptures how they did it. Jesus, of course, 
was masterful at this, and he did it primarily through the use of parable. parables. Yeah. And his parables were always based in a framework that the common man knew very well. So uh, you're dealing with an agrarian society, and you talk about a farmer goes out to sow, you know, and, and they've all experienced all that. And his parables were always very strongly associated with something that they knew to draw a conclusion that they may not have otherwise drawn. The Apostle Paul does the same thing when he walks into Athens. He starts quoting popular poets. He said, look, you guys agree with this. Let me just put all the dots together for you. You, you know this, you know this, you know this. You even know that there might be a God you don't know. So let me string all this together and see what you, what yeah. you think. And that's how, from a practical level, he does it. But it takes you understanding... In order to do that, you got to understand the high aspects of it first. So our pastors need to understand this. And I'm not saying our pastors all have to go to um, advanced degrees in college. That's not what I'm saying. But they have to at least know that you don't know things, right? Mm. And I always say you don't know what you don't know. So sometimes you're, with your intellectual humility, you say, how you, maybe you start looking up resources you how or call somebody this is why we exist you know how can i make this relevant to my congregation how can i tie this together what what am i missing and uh finding those resources can actually be a big benefit and make you think of things that you may not have otherwise thought and i'll also point this uh, while we are talking about um, academics here and you know academic scholarship uh, learning is not merely one one way yeah, uh, in my experience, people who've who've not achieved high academic, you know, degrees and everything, but they are dear friends in Christ, and they have spoken in ways because they have learned the Word of God. They spend their time into my own life, and I think that's been equally beautiful than opening a book and gaining wisdom out of it. Yeah, sometimes yeah, right. we in our yeah. actual academic pursuits we can actually distance people and and uh, kind of objectify them yeah and sometimes it's important to pull back hey you know you're talking about a real living person mm -hmm. who's in front of you right even in our apologetics it's not how many notches you can put on your belt or how you can win the argument it's how you can win the person and we we, we can run in that risk as well it's very easy to do right all right let's get into the practical side of this show for instance um in your experience, what would be some of the maybe first steps to take? Let's say if uh, some of our listeners are eager to take that first step, and uh, it's just a wide field. Where, where do they even start, right? What would you, what advice would you give our listeners? I would say start where you are. The, 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 the most challenging thing is to procrastinate uh, because of the reason that we think that, oh, we don't know enough. Right, yeah. I think that that would be a great impediment to learning. I, I always say we got to be with even with workout, right? And that's a challenge for me as well, yeah. right? And not today, not tomorrow, but I oh because I'm getting old. I can't. Dog on Newton, body at rest and, remains at yeah, rest. Exactly. Yeah. So don't delay that. I would say, pick up, uh, talk to your pastors, talk to your friends who are in, in the academic field or wherever they might be. You know, what are they reading? What is relevant for there our culture go. today? Uh, how can I speak to my children about these issues? So wherever you are in terms of your life, you know, uh, get a book, uh, yeah. get some recommendations yeah. in the areas that you want to yeah. learn. But I want to uh, point to something John Piper talks about. He talks about six habits of heart and mind. And he talks about whenever you want to learn something, you know, start with observation, then try and understand. Uh, and then he says, evaluate what you are learning or understanding, and then uh, absorb that feeling about what you've learned, and then apply that in your life, and at the end, express. So I think one of the good ways of learning is this, whatever small or big thought or ideas you're engaging with, one of the best ways to learn and to keep it in your life and apply in your life is to share with others. Teach people in your life or share with them what you're learning. That's the best way to grow. So I, I would, rec well, one of the books that 
really made a pivotal difference in my life was Love Your God With All Your Mind mm-hmm. by J.P. Moreland. I remember reading that in the, in, in the 90s, and, and it made a huge difference. I think that's a, if you're going to start with something, yeah. that's a good book to start with to, to lay out not only the, the reasons why we need to engage ourselves intellectually, but, but the kind of the groundwork on how to go. And the second thing that I would say is, it, to your point and to your analogy, it's just like working out physically you have to have some resistance right yeah. you've got it you got to push so pick a subject that you're passionate about it can be pro-life it can be um maybe How evangelism child. It, it can be the the fact of the resurrection pick a subject you're passionate about and write a letter to the editor of the local paper this is a wonderful uh, way to exercise your um, abilities because it forces you, especially when you're typing, it forces you to dig deep and make, okay, I re- read that sentence. Can I justify it? Can I back it up? Do I know what I'm talking about? And, and then you can do that or pick a friend that you can go out to lunch with, maybe a workmate or somebody like that, where you can have a, a discussion where you can challenge one another a little bit and you say, well, that's a really, really good question. Let me come back next week. Yeah. Uh, some people say you can do this online. My, my, caution is you can but when you start typing on the keyboard and you start hitting the keys harder and harder you're probably time to stop because now you're getting more emotional than you are thoughtful and 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 the whole point of this is to go deep into that subject and once you go deep into that subject then you pick a second subject and and right you okay so i've i've answered the pro-life questions and i I've heard their objections and I've answered their objections and now they brought up, you know, unstringing the violinist and we, 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 okay. So I've gone all the way down that. Now let's talk about why morality must be grounded in God. Okay. And we started on that thread. You don't have to learn everything all at once, but just pick one thing. And once you've got that, then you can move to the next thing. And as I said, as you uncover the answers, you'll be amazed yeah at just how robust the Christian worldview actually is. Uh, I will add one more thing. One of the things that universities or Bible colleges or institutions offer is community. Yes. Of people who are reading the same thing, writing the same papers, you're engaging with them, you know, with different life experiences. And so if you're not, uh, if you're not able to get into an institution or, 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 or college or university, find that community, maybe in your church, or yeah. among your friends, you have to. I think it, it's a it's a great support if you have people, because I, I, Harry, I always ask you what what book you're reading, yeah. right? You're making suggestions all the time, uh, and I'm mentioning what what books I'm reading. Yeah. That helps a lot. So yeah, like the, among the three of us yeah. right here, I mean, we love getting together. Uh, not just doing the radio show, but just even hanging out yes. because we love talking about these things. We sharpen each other. Mm. Yeah. And so uh, that would be one of my tips uh, is find a group of friends uh, that you might have a, a good discussion partner with. Maybe pick up a book together, like Lenny already uh, suggested a very good first book, Love God With All Your Your Mind by yeah. J.P. Moreland. That would be good. Or what, even C.S. Yeah. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Mm-hmm. That Maybe would be good too. That would be a good book to start with. I would also suggest pick up a intro book on logic. Mm. That might be fun. That might be fun. Um, see, sometimes it's hard, right? Um, if, if let's say they're interested in starting this, we we've already mentioned some of our uh, suggestions, but it it really is hard to figure out where to start because it's just so many yeah. options. Where to start? I mean, are they? Do they need advanced degrees? You yeah, know, do yeah. they uh, maybe get a certificate in Christian apologetics or whatever? Or do I just read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? Those kinds of things. You know, when I first learned to play the guitar, one of the uh, there's many kids in the class, and a lot of them didn't go very very far. But the secret is to f- pick the song that you like. Mm, there you go even though it's a simple song and you want to learn that because you like the song. And that's why, that's why I say pick the one issue that you're passionate Mm -hmm. about first, Mm -hmm. because you're much more likely to stick with it. And then you can branch off. I like that. And and so maybe we need to also instruct the listener as to how to form their passions or what passions they ought to get into. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not just like anything. So, 
I'm, I'm always thinking about this, but if uh, our Christian leaders are not doing a good job in getting you excited about Jesus, about God, about Scripture, about our faith, then maybe that's one... Well, start a conversation with your pastor and say, you know, what, what's wrong with me? Why am I not getting into this, right? Mm. Because God ought to be the most beautiful thing ever. And again, even even if that's the first step in, in, in getting connected with something that we like, it's many times it's through beauty, right? We see something what? and it's attractive. Yeah. We like it. We want to possess it. Well, if you're doing it right, you don't want to possess beauty. It's it's something to be admired, and but you also want to approach it with reverence and respect. And so, so that's I mean? a that's a that's a good point. For example, it, it doesn't have to be just dry facts. There is a whole argument from beauty mm-hmm. yeah. for the existence of God, and and one of the you know transcendentals is that God is beautiful, and how beauty itself reflects the creator and his creation, his love of creation. That's an interesting piece to, to pull on. Uh, how is God reflected in art? How, you know, why is it that in the depths of the sea, in the Marianas Trench, and in these places where there are no, there is no light, that you can pull out these wonderful multicolored fish who, who reflect the beauty of God? Why is it that a sunset is always understood as beautiful? You know, there, yeah. God reflects that nature in his creation. Yeah, those are good starting points. Um, again, the fact that we're even created in God's image should be something very interesting. Yeah. So what, what even if you yeah. don't, yeah, even if you don't trust us, but we're saying that, hey, if you're listening to this, you are created in God's image. What yeah. does that mean? What does that entail? What what does that drive you toward, right? I mean, yeah. that needs inspection, my goodness, mm. right? And also what we are saying is that it's not merely cerebral exercise. Mm. It has an end and we need, to, we need to be careful as well because it could be just having pleasure in learning and learning and learning and not reaching anywhere. That's not the goal. For a Christian, it's about loving God with all our mind, That's right. soul, and strength, right? Not keeping our mind aside, but it's to his worship, to know him more and yes. to love him more. That is ultimately the end is to worship God in all of his glory yeah. and splendor. Well, I think we're almost done. Um so again, we have been talking about what role does Christian scholarship play in the church? And so the answer, of course, is yes, it does play a, a big deal. And our task is to love God with all of our being, which includes our minds. So um, you've been listening to apologetics.com radio, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Our hope is that you have learned some aspect about the Christian worldview that strengthens your faith and make you want to learn more. So special thanks to my panel, Jacob and Lenny, and to our behind-the-scenes uh, intrepid engineers back there who make us sound good. And special thank you to your listeners. Until next time, good night. Good night.